more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Lael Wentland from the Department of Bioengineering. Hey, Lael. Hi. Welcome to the booth. <laughs> We're excited to have you. Your research is actually really fun once you kind of get through some basic examples. So you do microfluidics research, which sounds really wild. Can you give us an example of some paper-based microfluidics work that has we probably have seen in all grocery stores? Yeah, I think many people are very familiar with something called the pregnancy test. Whoa. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, behind that little piece of plastic actually is a paper-based microfluidic. And it's that paper that you just add the urine and a bunch of little chemical reactions happen and you get your result, that yes or no, are you pregnant or not? So prior to the pregnancy test, right, you could still go to the hospital and you can get a pregnancy test, but there's many steps involved, right? There's a lot of lab work. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of people. You have to go to the hospital to actually get this done. So the obvious benefit of pregnancy tests specifically, but these paper-based, and we'll talk about the micro part of the microfluidics, fluid being, well, you know, the sample, <laughs> uh, is that you can get an answer in... A really short amount of time and now at a really low cost in your own home uh but it's not just pregnancy tests that can that have like this kind of requirement where having an answer on demand would be really helpful for an individual so uh tell us a little bit more about your specific research and and how this fits in yeah so i really came to graduate school because i wanted to learn how to create rapid diagnostics and we do this, as you said, using paper-based diagnostics. And my lab and my research specifically has been working on creating a rapid paper-based test for testing phenylalanine, which is an amino acid. And it, you, we use blood. So we're testing for phenylalanine in blood. And this is specifically used for people who have a rare condition called phenylketonuria. And we're really interested in this because these people, you know, they... Are, it's a lifelong disorder. They have to have a life. They are on a diet their whole life. 
and they have a hard time knowing how much phenylalanine do I have in my body. So, you know, diabetics have their glucose monitor and they can monitor their health and make, you know, quick decisions based on that little test. We want to create a similar test for uh, these people with phenylketonuria so they can rapidly, you know, make decisions about their diet. Right, because um, I, I guess for, for anyone who doesn't know, maybe I'm outing myself, I didn't know what phenylalanine was, um, but it's in basically all foods or mm-hmm. like a lot of foods. And so people with, I'm going to use the acronym PKU because I can't say the full word, um, have to live a very, very like strict regulated diet, almost almost like impossible to have like a healthy, well-balanced diet, right? Correct. Um, yeah, I think, I think when we discussed in in our pre-interview, it was like carbs and sugar is basically what's left, right? Yeah. Anything that's in high protein, you really can't have that has a lot of phenylalanine in it. So, right. And, and right now there isn't, there isn't like a glucose type monitor for people with PKU. There's no easy way to do this, right? What's like the process for someone who has PKU to, to figure out Oh my gosh, how much phenylalanine is in my blood right now? Yeah, because they cannot metabolize. They cannot break down this amino acid. It's just building up in your system. And so they have to either send in blood samples to a doctor and that can take days, which, you know, really is not helpful if you're trying to make a decision about what you're going to eat that day. <laughs> yeah, what can I have for lunch? I guess I'll know in three days. <laughs> as, as some background, uh, this disorder, if you have too much of phenylalanine, again, one of the amino acids, uh, if you have too much of it, it can also cause seizures and some developmental issues. So, you know, having an answer a few days from now doesn't really help if you're, you know, at the, at the threshold of possibly getting into that, like, kind of seizure uh, state. So... Yeah, this is kind of another place where a rapid test point. And can you um, define the the point of care aspects? I think this is really important as well. Yeah, so we kind of group tests in general as point of care, in that you can run this test by the person who needs the information. So sometimes they actually run point of care tests in the doctor's office. But oftentimes you think of a pregnancy test. I mean, the pregnant mother wants to know right then. So really it's at the point of care. It's where they are. Mm. Or oftentimes maybe another term is point of need. Mm. So there's different um, phraseologies. That lots of different terms our, our field likes to use. Mm. I didn't, phraseology is like a new <laughs> word to me too. <laughs> I'm learning a lot from Lail. I think I made that word up. <laughs> you're, a, no. you're a scientist. You can do it. It's okay. <laughs> I totally bought it. Um, another little, like, I mean, I, I, I learned a lot, um, from your work, but like a little snippet that I didn't know is that everyone is tested for PKU as a baby. So it's not like, well, so technically you can kind of know your whole life that you have it, but there isn't, there isn't a cure. There isn't really a treatment other than, Hey, what's your phenylalanine levels, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a genetic disorder. Uh, there are maybe, I mean, there is one kind of pill potentially, but it doesn't help all people who have PKU. Mm. And so a mo- majority are on a diet. And actually in the U.S., I think it's a, like one in 10,000 births. Pe- there's mm. positive for um, for PKU. But I mean, that's not a lot, right? So it technically is classified as a, a rare disease, which you know means that there's not a lot of support for that. And there hasn't been a lot of innovation and... Um, technology to support them. Well, there's a lot more diabetics 
in the U.S. So it's been a lot more effort to support them in their health. And actually, let's uh, transition to talking about how diabetics kind of use how they test themselves and then contrast that with uh, how your research is is ongoing. So for a diabetic, you you know, you still use a, a paper based method, right? You add in a couple drops of blood, but you still need this device. You have to have some kind of glucose monitoring machine. Uh, tell us what the limitations of that requirement is and why your research kind of moves away from that machine based and uses the WHO uh, assured criteria. Yeah, well, let me define this assured criteria because it's definitely <laughs> uh, it's 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 like if you had the most ideal um, paper based diagnostic or rapid test, you really want this test to be you know, we kind of touch touch this on the pregnancy test. It's affordable. It's, you know, able to sense sensitive. It's specific to its target. It's user friendly. It's rapid and robust. It's not, as you said, equipment free. So not having to use, you know, like electronic piece of equipment. <laughs> uh, and it's also very easy for and deliverable to the end users. And so I think when we're working on developing these paper-based diagnostics, not only are we thinking about what are the chemistries and the assays we have to use to design to target this whatever bio biochemical target we're looking for, but we also have to make it fit these criteria. And so remove and just make it very automated. So we just add the sample to the device and then everything happens in the device. So actually, this is where uh, in, in some ways, you know, it's not robots taking over lab people's jobs, but it's, you know, you're you're developing these like little capillary action tubes that will take the place of lab workers jobs in a way. I'm, I'm, I'm being very you know <laughs> silly here. Um, but actually, this is where the kind of fabrication and manufacturing side, because you're housed in the College of Engineering, right? So I think this is the uh, uh, like the actual how the Lego pieces fit together is really important because it's not just insert sample and then answer comes out the other side right <laughs> it's insert sample when you build these devices there's a set of many chemical reactions that must occur in sequence in a specific order um can you tell us about how you fabricate these devices um and the objective being to have this kind of sequential reaction for the end product being you know a color on like an obvious an obvious color metric indicator that is easy for the end user to understand. Yeah. So in uh, our, we've been saying the word paper, but like, I want to clarify what we really take advantage <laughs> yeah, of is, yeah. <laughs> is that we're taking advantage of a porous material. So these porous materials are able to move fluid without me having to touch the fluid. So if you think about a paper towel and you just add that paper towel, like touch a little piece of water, a little bit of water, and actually like the water moves up into the paper towel. That's called capillary action or mm -hmm. wicking. Mm -hmm. And so we really take advantage of that and that we can add this like fluid-based sample and it moves through the paper, this porous material. And inside the porous material, we have dried down the necessary chemical reagents. And so you can organize your chemicals in in that strip of piece of piece of paper so that you, that you sequentially your your target like sees those reagents in that order that you want right it was good to clarify that because yeah this this paper it's not like paper in my notebook that i have in my backpack <laughs> no. right now and and so just to clarify the thing that kind of um allows this paper to you know have this capillary action is those pores right mm -hmm. so does like 
changing the size or amount of pores affect like how quickly or how much liquid this paper can absorb, like potentially how many stages there are in whatever test you're trying to perform? Yeah, for sure. And there are a lot of different even paper materials that we use because we know like, oh, this paper has really big pores or this one has really small pores. And we know like how fast fluid moves through. So we actually are mm. really um, careful and considerate about what material we're using and like the different how much of it, the, the geometry. Uh, and I actually had to do a lot of like optimization, just testing multiple materials. Like are my even my reagents. Are they compatible? Um, so there's just like lots of, you know, it's the interconnection of the paper and the reagents that I'm I'm kind of designing and engineering. So for for you grad students or you know undergraduates who are in like chemistry or biology that do a lot of lab work, right? You just have a lot of pipetting, a lot of centrifuging, a lot of you know uh, a lot of just basic lab work that just takes time. Mm-hmm. And the device you're developing, right, with different materials, different size pores, different reagents, you know, and different it's essentially doing all of this, you know, kind of like purification, buffering, separation, quantification, semi-quantification, we might get into that. Um, But it's doing all of that in an automated way. And I think this is... In a strip of paper. (laughs) uh, Paper-like member. Well, okay. Oh, Adrian. (laughs) Took away the shock and effect. (laughs) But this is why I think it's actually really fantastic. And Again, before we spoke to Leo a couple of days ago, I had no idea how pregnancy tests actually work. And it it blew my mind that it's like, oh, all of this is just automated into the device itself. That's really cool. So take us into what it actually looks like when you're fabricating these devices. Like what what exactly are you doing? Yeah. So my device is a, a little bit different. It doesn't work, have the same underlying chemistry as a pregnancy test. But there's I can just like there's three main steps, I like to call it. The first step is the sample preparation or the sample processing where I'm taking this blood and I put it on this special porous membrane that actually removes the red blood cells. So only the, only the plasma goes through. Oftentimes, when, if you're in a lab, you have to do a centrifuge. You centrifuge out the plasma from the red blood cells. And for those that don't know what a centrifuge is, you spin it around <laughs> really, really fast and the blood cells sink to the bottom and the plasma stays up top. Yeah, it requires, you know, a, like skilled person to be able to balance the centrifuge and also electricity. So some stuff we can't, I don't have a centrifuge at home. Yeah, I no, can't do that. most people don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's really important. So now we have our red blood cells removed and we have our kind of samples prepared and then it moves on to this next part in the paper. That it flows by capillary action. Mm. I, I'm sorry. I just I don't think we actually covered this in the pre-interview. So right now I am just I'm just <laughs> shocked that there is a a part of the porous membrane that separates the red blood cells from the uh, that's physically. Wow. I mean, red blood cells are really big, and so the rest of everything is a lot smaller. So you just you know it can't the red blood cells cannot physically pass through the membrane. So it has to be a small enough filter that it doesn't allow red blood cells to pass through, but not too small of a filter mm-hmm. that it doesn't let anything else pass through. Yeah. Luckily, what I'm look, what I'm trying to test for, phenylalanine, an amino acid, is really tiny. Mm. Okay. So easy to separate from from the big stuff. Yep. Okay. So that's step Sorry, one. Sorry. Uh, yeah. The, I'm going to stop you probably at every <laughs> step going, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, step two is this, I actually use this enzyme that reacts with phenylalanine. And the, the product of this reaction, I then take and is moved on to the next stage. So I just, basically the enzyme is like, sees phenylalanine and reacts with it. And it has a product. And so then that product moves on to the next stage in another piece of paper. 
it's all just flowing along. <laughs> and uh, and capillary then, action. Yes. <laughs> and finally, at the final, I'm actually using um, other reagents, chemicals that will react with that product and turn purple. So I'm looking for this purple color. So if there's a high concentration, a lot of phenylalanine, it's going to be really dark purple. There's not a lot of phenylalanine. It's going to be very light purple or even white. So I can, we can use, and then we can say, oh, I kind of have a standard curve of colors, and I can say, I know pretty much this is the concentration I expect to be. Hand wavy, of course, you know, <laughs> semi-quantitative. Well, yes. but, but then, you know, said user could be like, oh, I can have this thing with a little bit more phenylalanine today, or, oh, now I just have to eat, I don't know, a potato. Yeah, or like, <laughs> this is really dark. I should probably go see my doctor. So th- this gets that's into, a good point. <laughs> this, gets into the, this gets into the trade-off of uh, of these di- diagnostic mm-hmm. tools, which is you know, if you get a lab run sample, okay, you have you know some number and some confidence interval that's really narrow. That's great, but it takes days to get that. Versus you know, while this may not be perfectly accurate, it at least gets you to within a fairly narrow window that you can be you know somewhat confident of like, oh, very light purple, very dark purple. I can you know adjust as needed. And especially for someone or someone for whose condition is very much dependent on what they're eating in the day. Oh, you can't, you, you just can't wait days. Like this is just. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. So, so, okay. So you've, you've explained to us, I mean, obviously very simplified how, how you you built this device you you've made it does it work yes <laughs> <laughs> <Woo-hoo>. <laughs> yeah we've actually that's a eureka yeah. moment yeah right yeah that's gotta be the eureka when you see the purple line and you're like <gasps> yes you're like oh it's purple and <laughs> hopefully it's purple when it should be purple <laughs> right <laughs> oh that too <laughs> uh yeah so we actually i have been taking and like human blood of like people that are healthy Mm-hmm. And I spike in some phenylalanine at no con- known concentrations, and it allows me to see how sensitive is my diagnostic. Can I differentiate between like six milligrams per deciliter or twelve milligrams? Mm. Or and that's you know gives us an idea of how well our device is working. Also, just like can I even detect phenylalanine compared to a sample of just a healthy individual? So I've we've been able to do that, and then we've also moved on to the stage of we, where we're taking our devices and we're like, okay. We know it works, but now can we like store it mm. and use it a couple days later? Like it's no, if I have to make this device fresh every single time, right. it's, it's no use to these. Home <laughs> delivery, ding dong. Yeah. Amazon has two hour delivery, that's fine. Right? Yeah. And Lail showing up at your door with your device. <laughs> um, right. So yes. Yeah, so, so we, you're in your third year or you were in your third year and you'd gotten to this point where you're like, yeah, I, I spike this blood with phenylalanine and it works. I see differences. Now it's time for, for yeah, long-term storage testing. And then the next step would be like user testing, like taking it to an actual clinic, having people use it there and comparing it to the lab. What, what happened? You got, you started your long-term storage testing and then something, something stopped you. I don't know. I mean, I think it, did it happen to you? Did COVID happen to you? Was... It absolutely did. Oh, okay. <laughs> March 2020. Is that what you mean? The Rona? <laughs> right. Kind of a big bummer. I mean, for many reasons. But for you personally, for your professionally, for your research, you were 15 days into testing, like long-term storage and shut down. Can't get in the lab. Cannot get blood. Can't, can't get, get blood. blood. That's the big one. <laughs> <laughs> when blood is your, your sample. <laughs> um, but... 
there, there's kind of like silver linings in all of this. It, it showed you that your device can be stored for 15 days, right? It mm-hmm. didn't, after 15 days, you still were able to get yeah. accurate results or results. Yeah. And at, at least for, for people that don't, so I imagine it was the enzyme in particular, the, the like step two, the enzyme stability was kind of the most questionable in terms of whether it would. Actually, I have to say my colorimetric, the reagents that turned, that oh. turned purple were actually really sensitive to oxygen. Mm. And so I actually had to put in an additive. And that per, per, like blocked exposure to oxygen and light. And I also like kept them in dark because they're really light sensitive and they're mm. really oxygen sensitive. Mm. So it was the, the enzyme is actually very robust. And I did te- I, t- I added I did or tried it with some additives, but it really didn't need it for at least the time span that I was testing it. Maybe maybe like year long. Maybe mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> I was trying to store it for a year. Maybe I right. might need to add <laughs> some protective components. Right. So so that kind of got put on hold and you had to pivot your research which which we'll maybe talk about in a, in a couple minutes but the plan the hope is that with 2022 um hopefully we can or you can move into kind of these clinical studies where the the aim would be to kind of like test it comparatively right yeah we really want to know is how well does our device test for phenylalanine compared to the gold standard or the the laboratory test that is normally run Right, the one that takes several days. Yeah. Highly sensitive, but not convenient. And I would say it takes a lot of resources and manpower Mm. and not only time, Mm. but yeah, those are the things that maybe my little paper-based device (laughs) doesn't need. Right. Well, fingers crossed. I know I know that that would involve that would involve some travel for you, right? You're partnered with a clinic that isn't that's somewhere a travel away. Yeah, but I think um, you know, there's potential with collaborations closer and i of course yeah, the, the future is unknown but yeah. we're, we're crossing our fingers <laughs> um and so that kind of brought us yeah you you had to pivot quite a bit um well still kind of in the same realm but um yeah had to think creatively when when things like blood were in short supply at the start of covid so you and your advisor kind of had a creative idea on like how to keep working on something yeah my advisor elaine fu uh she we were talking about different ideas and we're like well you know what we can get is we can like purchase saliva from before covid and we're interested in interested in saliva because it's also not like a complex sample you believe it or not i mean it looks clear right (laughs) there's a lot of stuff in saliva Mm. (laughs) can like really impact your assay just mm. like you can blood there's a lot of stuff but saliva is just as complex mm-hmm. that must have been kind of interesting as we were learning more about covid and, and how it's dispersed whether like aerosol form or you know droplet form you're like oh i'm studying saliva and what's in it and we're talking so much about where saliva is in the air uh, that's <laughs> yeah. another conversation I think. <laughs> but i guess it was pre-covid saliva so at least, yeah yeah it was yeah. collected pre-covid yeah <laughs> but st- yes i see i see your point um but yeah that was interesting to me that uh, when you mentioned to us that um yeah kind of like separating out the parts that you sort of want from saliva to do testing is is very complicated because saliva is complex yeah i would say like in general in my field that sample pre-processing is crucial mm-hmm. for the how for how your assay if it's successful or not and it can be difficult to do without any user manual steps i mean in the lab it takes a lot of as you said centrifugation dilution pipetting adding special buffers and so getting that to happen on paper can can be a challenge Mm. 
Um, right. So, so saliva was on the table, and and there and there'd sort of like been something that your advisor, um, Elaine Fu, had wanted to kind of look at for a little while, right? It's an it's an idea or like a project that she'd had for for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she had this idea of looking detecting this drug called carbamazepine or CBZ in saliva. And that's really important because people who have epilepsy take this drug. But, I mean, it's hard to find the optimal dose for them because if the drug dosage is too high, it can be really toxic. But if the drug dosage is too low, it's really ineffective at preventing seizures. So Mm. if they had a way to help them more um, optimize that drug dosage and, like, rapidly, quickly be able to test the concentration and their metabolism, basically, of this drug, then you could really quickly optimize their drug dosage. So we're working on creating a test to test for carbamazepine in saliva. And this is using this a similar framework, right? Where it's, you know, it, it's it's a point of care diagnostic. It's it's fast. Uh, you know, ideally, you know, once you do the proof of concept staging, it can be it can be cheap. Uh, and, you know, you don't necessarily need, or in, in this case, you might need some kind of electri- uh, device. Mm-hmm. You might need an internal device. And I would say, yeah, well, the concept is still the same. What's under the hood is very different. And, like, I would say, I would akin it to, like, oh, we, you know, you have an electric car and a regular, like, car that runs on gas. <laughs> right. But, like, what's under the hood? Car, but what's under the hood is very different right yeah yeah and you said you it was it was exciting for you because you got to learn a whole new technique to build this device right electro electrochemistry yeah electrochemistry which really just means that you apply a voltage there's like little electrodes to this fluid sample and then a chemical reaction happens because of that applied voltage and then we measure that and we can say oh well this reaction was really big or this reaction was really small. And if it's like a small reaction, then it's like, well, there's not that much to react with. The concentration is low. But if it's a big reaction, then concentration is high, which is really important because we actually want to get a quantitative. We want to get to the this quantitative value, whereas like, like a pregnancy test provides you a, a binary, like a yes, no, right. which is necessary for that test. But when there's a lot of other conditions where you really do want to get a quantitative value. Mm-hmm. And that's necessary for just like healthcare mm-hmm. decisions. Right. So you're, that's still ongoing, right? That's, that's currently. We're wrapping up the, wrapping up that work for the paper. And then we're going to try to pivot back to the, the PKU work. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so your device is, is, is built for this or. We you've... did like a primary proof of concept and showed that, you know, with a little bit of finagling to the device and, we can actually detect carbamazepine down in the therapeutically relevant range or the range that we would expect mm-hmm. to see in saliva, right? Like it's no use if I can sense this drug at really high concentrations that are never going to be seen in a human. But I, I want to make sure. So we actually can look back at the literature and people have tested like what is the concentration mm. of carbamazepine in mm. saliva if they're taking this drug. And mm. so our drug is able to actually detect it in that in that concentration range. I I think this is fascinating work. And we we talked a little bit um in in the pre-interview about like the challenges to your work. I mean, there's probably many, but um is a, a, like a major challenge is how do we scale up these devices that you're that you're, you know, building, optimizing in in the lab 
you alone <laughs> you know cut, i think you were talking about like cutting pieces of paper with a laser I, I can't remember all the things but like how do we scale these devices up and make them accessible to many yeah i think that's something that i find really interesting and maybe not something that we can uh, it's not as easy a question to answer in academia and mm. so it's uh, really something that is a problem in industry and maybe one potentially one of the contributing factors for why we don't see as many tests like the pregnancy test available to us. Like, like I would love to be able to go into the store and be like, do I have the flu? Mm, yeah. But you, you know, there's just a lot of barriers to that fabrication. They have, they, they've spent years optimizing the mass manufacturing of pregnancy tests. I, I learned it was first commercialized in 1988. Yeah. That's very recent, right? No, if you think about it, I don't know. I mean, in in te I'm, I'm thinking from healthcare, from like a tech perspective, 1988 is like forever ago. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking more of the perspective of like, as someone who like, I don't know, might get, I don't know, like, oh, what did all the women do then? I don't know. <laughs> Before that's then. a great question. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's interesting how brains work, different <laughs> angles to things. <laughs> anyway, um, so Lail, when you came to um, OSU for um, your PhD, it wasn't your first kind of introduction to protein engineering or bioengineering. Um you've you've actually you'd actually done it for quite some time before um grad school yeah i was actually first i did my undergrad at university of washington in bioengineering and i got to experience i really delve into bioengineering because i loved research i found i just had this opportunity to work in a research lab right before i started college and i just had this amazing mentor dr wendy thomas shout out to <laughs> and i um, did research with her all four years of undergrad, and I probably I probably liked research more than I did school. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so and but then as a while I was there, I was just influenced by all of the people. There was a lot of people working on global health or, or rapid paper-based diagnostics at, in Washington, and so I became inspired and and really got interested in that whole question of how can we make healthcare more accessible. Um, and therefore, a little bit, hopefully, more sustainable in the long run. Mm. I actually want to return to Dr. Wendy Thomas, and I want to ask you, um, what what did you think research was before you started in the lab, and what did you think of it by the time you were done in that lab? Because you spent four years doing research, and this isn't just cleaning dishes, kind of like you were like really in the thick of it. <laughs> well, I guess. I didn't have a concept of what a bioengineer was coming into it. And I kind of learned that um, along the way that you're a bioengineer is maybe someone that's good at taking those biology concepts and applying it. And she really had this great background of taking concepts from like biology and also uh, things from like modeling things in computer science and combining them. And so I think just seeing her doing science and have and being established in the field was really inspiring and, and made it feel like I could also be a bioengineer. And that science is, is really about, you know, I didn't understand about reading literature. And I think that I like really have a good appreciation for people who can synthesize literature and, and read the field. I think mm. that's 
one of that reading literature and also being able to design experiments mm. in a like a logical like what's the basic question that you're trying to answer and that's what I kind of learned from her right you're doing when you do it in high school you're like oh you're given all of this <laughs> you're given the protocol yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and besides dr wendy thomas you had a second like very strong female mentor um at uw right yeah shivani now ludwig and she was the graduate student that i was mm. paired with mm. and i kind of like was working on side projects underneath her phd mm. and you then after like undergrad you went into like a very different almost environment where um i mean super cool program and we'll talk about that for in a second but you you were you were in a situation where all your colleagues were men right and and that was like quite different for you so to to have had that like strong female mentorship like was was probably quite significant to you i didn't um it's one of those things where you don't know what you have till it's gone Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) so i yeah, I guess I can talk about the yes, experience. Yeah, yeah. So I <laughs> jump right in. Um, knew I wanted to move into global healthcare and point of care diagnostics, so I applied for this fellowship, this research fellowship called the Whitaker Fellowship, and then I was able to, you know, receive it surprisingly, <laughs> and uh, it allowed me to do research in Vietnam mm. in Hanoi, Vietnam, for a year with um, sort of attached to a medical device company. Which I'm so sorry to say, like, it, it's, this seems like such a fantastic fellowship. It doesn't exist anymore, right? You said you were the last cohort? One of the last. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What a what a bummer because this is, yeah. So you got this fellowship to live in another country. You, basically a country of your choosing, right? Mm-hmm. Picked- um, you picked Vietnam uh, to be in Hanoi and you worked with a bio- biomedical engineering, well, it was biomedical engineering fellowship and you worked with this small medical device company where you were kind of just let loose. <laughs> Right. I mean, you you brought your fellowship and. Yeah, I mean, they were great to provide me information, but they were like, hey, can you maybe just make prototype a design for this device? We have all these we make these other devices that treat babies in the Mm -hmm. hospital who have jaundice. But now we want to make something that will help the nurses know, like how the babies are actually responding. You know, what's the diagnosis of the baby? Mm. So I was tasked to make a, uh, you know, rapid test for jaundice for infants. Mm-hmm. And did you let, yeah, talk, talk, talk to us a little more about, about that, like how you detect jaundice basically in a sample. Um, use blood mm-hmm. go back to the, the blood, <laughs> get my first experience working with blood mm. and, um, you really can just shine a light mm-hmm. through the blood and <laughs> inspirational and, quote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just the basic was you, you shine a light through the blood mm. and um, you kind of can look at the absorbance of that light at a specific wavelength. And that's that bilirubin. So bilirubin is a protein that causes the yellow. It like literally mm. is yellow. So mm-hmm. you can just kind of look, okay, how much yellow is absorbed mm-hmm. from my blood sample. Mm-hmm. And I can get a, concentration of of how well how much bilirubin there's left and do i need to treat the baby anymore Mm. and you were you actually designed like a little handheld um absorbance reader to do this right yeah i did that's incredible like and to to then i i I just like what are the i mean maybe not what are the chances but that in this fellowship after your undergrad you're tasked with designing this kind of point of care diagnostic tool and now here you are 
on your third one basically already i think i think it's incredible oh, yeah, I think we, can so call, awesome. we can call the first one like a practice one. i don't know <laughs> <laughs> but with like no graduate education experience i mean you basically went in just like hey we'd like to have this can you do it <laughs> yeah it was a good experience to learn how to prototype something right so in that way you were your own mentor it sounds like right you were just like here, try this thing and, you know, have fun at it, which is maybe one of the reasons why you wanted to pursue a PhD is to have that kind of more um, established kind of mentoring, mentee uh, relationship. Yeah, when I was there, I realized um, how necessary it is to have collaboration. I don't know everything and I and guidance. Um, and I think they were great. The company was just like so amazing at providing me the support I needed to mm. accomplish my tasks. Um, but there was no one telling me directly what to do. And uh, I mean, that's kind of what you do in your PhD, but you do have a mentor. And so I was really excited to come and it's like, wow, actually in my PhD, I can treat it as I'm going to learn how to become a project manager because in Vietnam, I was not the greatest project manager. <laughs> I admit, I, I know my faults in there. <laughs> so like how can now I'm going to take in this PhD experience and mm. how can I you know, manage? We all are actually project managers in our PhD. We are we are in charge of, <laughs> and tasked to answer this question, these questions. So, yeah, I've, I've maybe it's a little bit different perspective from other people, but that's how I've kind of seen my my PhD. That's awesome. Yeah, um, we are slowly wrapping up, um, but before we kind of get to our our final traditions, there is one more thing that I that I want um, listeners to to hear a small little anecdote from during your undergrad when you went to Tanzania you were actually exposed to a completely different kind of point of care test that doesn't really exist here in the United States. Yeah, I had the opportunity to do, uh, just like see how hospitals are and repair medical equipment in Tanzania. And while I was there, I actually got a little bit sick. And I, they took me to the local hospital, paid like five bucks. <laughs> and um, they ran a point of care test right in front of me to test for malaria. I did not have malaria, but it was really cool to see this little test mm -hmm. being run. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. I want to like work on those. And yeah. Kind of inspired me to keep forward. Yeah. I thought, yeah, I thought that was a nice little anecdote to throw in. Not going to lie. I uh, definitely forgot about that anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, Lisa. <laughs> I just said like what there's so, so much like of these diagnostic tests have featured in your, in your life before you, you technically decided like, this is what I'm going to work on kind of like that kind of stuff <laughs> so the 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 dreaded question of any graduate student especially phd student towards the end of their of their time which is you know what's what's on the horizon next it sounds like you know you have you want to be a project manager to continue on this kind of um you know point of care testing device kind of framework is, is that sound right yeah i'm think i'm really interested in going to industry and actually seeing these devices moved and being used by people and like move them out to the market right and we <laughs> oh gosh bad host etiquette <laughs> and I, I just like one one of the points that we were saying like industry really is able to push this kind of thing forward because there's like money there right and like just resources that yeah a, a graduate student project or like a lab project at a university just doesn't have the like funding and resources to push it forward make it big and teams i think it's a mm. it's an interdisciplinary project mm. so lots of people uh, we had discussed briefly the idea that, okay, in, in, in graduate school, you're very much trained to be another tenure track professor. 
mind the fact that like 10% of people that get PhDs are actually tenure track professors. Let's put that off to the side. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Leaky pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have so many thoughts on this. Um, uh, but you were mentioning that going into industry, especially in your field, is... Uh, well, I mean, I guess kind of with many other a academic fields, going into industry is kind of like seen shunned, right, in a way. But for the work that you're doing, it is almost necessary to be in industry to actually like push these ideas forward, is it not? I mean, that's what I think. Yeah, so I'm excited to to go and try some industry jobs. Woohoo! I'm I'm excited to hear that because uh, <laughs> I have come to the, to the realization, along with many other of my fellow graduate students, of uh, yeah, none of us are going into academia for many reasons. Some are going into industry because, you know, that's kind of where things are actually happening. Um, others are making other choices for other reasons. Uh, but it's, I think it's good for graduate students to hear that, like, you are not confined to the ivory tower. Okay? It's okay to get out and do other things. It's great to get out. I mean, I, I can't wait to see what you do, Lil. I, I don't know if I'll if I'll, if I'll like Google you, but I I think this is so exciting. I mean, I've for, learned so much. For for all we know, you know, when when we're both retired on you know not social security, we're going to be taking like point of care tests. <laughs> oh, no, you, you're German. You have real healthcare when you go back to your country. When, when I won't have social security in my fifties, I'm going to be taking some kind of point of care test that Made that by. Be, yeah. You know, th this is the future. Every hour, I'll look looking, looking at my blood glucose to see how much I can run or something, or no. like you know. Oh, fake run. <laughs> um, Lael, this has been a bunch of fun. And yeah, I, I've learned a lot. Just from the basics of a pregnancy test is many stages. Who who knew? I guess Lael did before this. I did not. Um, <laughs> so on the show, we have two traditions um, that we end with uh, every, every episode. The first being um, that you give a piece of advice uh, to whomever you choose, former self, uh, future self, undergrads, grads, whomever. Um, what is that piece of advice? If you are considering at all to go into industry, <laughs> I highly recommend an industry a graduate level industry um, internship. I had one last summer. It was a great experience and really opened my eyes to what is possible mm -hmm. and just how that world works. As a shout out, a previous co-host uh, was also in a uh, during graduate school uh, internship. Um, and I, I believe uh, this is Heather. Dr. Heather Forsyth. Now Dr. Heather Forsyth. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I, I believe Heather is working for that company now. I think so, yeah. I think so, yeah. See, see people, listeners, it works. Go to industry. It, it, it does work. Uh, or try it out first. See if it's your <laughs> cup of yeah, tea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the other tradition we have is we ask you for a song to outro you to. So what song did you choose and why? Uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough to dedicate to all the people that have really helped me up the mountain of my PhD. Oh, that's really nice. Well, with that, Lael, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and teaching us so much of uh, so much about pregnancy tests that I didn't think there was that much to learn about, but also, you know, what healthcare might look like in the future. Fluidics, what a word. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> well, with that, here is Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and thank you again, Lael, for coming on.
Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.